On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. As we follow the story of the life of Jesus, we're at the point in his story we think of as Palm Sunday, a, a joyous occasion in some respects. Uh, here we are in Jerusalem. Are we sort of fairly close to where his entrance on Palm Sunday would have happened? Oh, absolutely, David. You know, was it right on this spot where we're sitting there? No, I can't say that. But it was certainly very, very close to here because here you and I are sitting on the Mount of Olives. Bethany was just over the top of this hill on the other side from where he set off. He would have come over the top of the hill, down this hillside, following the path, down the Kidron Valley that lies below us, up the other side of this little valley, and then entering through the gates that would have been straight ahead of us, gates that are blocked up now, and there entering the city of Jerusalem. So absolutely, we are very, very close indeed to where that joyous event occurred. It's always good to go back to the Bible and remind us of how it's recorded. So uh, which passage are you going to follow this time? Yeah, indeed, because we can have a way, can't we, of remembering the story and putting bits in that aren't quite there. So let's read uh, one of the accounts. It's actually in all four Gospels, in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19 and John 19. Uh, but I've chosen to read it from Matthew chapter 21. So let's recall what happened on that day pretty close to here where we're sitting today. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Two things jump out at me. First of all, how did Jesus know there was going to be this cult? Because, I mean, walking the streets of Jerusalem, there would be cults on virtually every street corner. And secondly, it sounds like there were two animals. It's not unusual at all for a, a young animal like that to be tethered alongside its mother as, as a way of training it in what it should do. So that's not odd. And as you said, in some ways, it's not odd even that there might be donkeys around. We can see them even today around Jerusalem being used to carry things and people. Um, so I think what happened here is uh, 
I suspect that what Jesus had done had prearranged this uh, with a friend that he knew had a donkey and that this almost is a, is a password, if I can put it that way. As you go, you're going to find this cult with a donkey and just say to them, the master needs them. And that will be, ah, it's Jesus, we've rearranged this. The other alternative, and I would be just as happy to accept this, is that this was in fact Jesus exercising a word of knowledge that we've seen him do before. So it doesn't tell us, it's one or the other. Either it's a prearranged signal or it's a word of knowledge that Jesus uses. Interesting that we've got the sound of the Muslim call to prayer behind us, but that Palm Sunday, you've read it just there, the sound of the voices singing, praising, <laughs> Hosanna would have been heard all around. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's, it's almost prophetic and it, it might be that listeners can't hear the cries, the several calls from lots of mosques around because, of course, uh, Jerusalem is a very mixed area from a point of view of religion. And you and I certainly can hear the shouting going on at the moment and the call to prayer. And, uh, yeah, it would have been pretty like that. It would No loudspeakers, of course, in those days like today. But it's almost a picture of, of the noise, the jubilation, the joy that there would have been that day as these people welcome him, him in, coming on this donkey, uh, in fulfilment of Scripture, Matthew reminds us. We've seen several times already, haven't we, how Matthew loves to refer his readers back to the Old Testament and to say this was in fulfilment of what the prophet said. He's wanting to let them know that what Jesus has come to do is not something new. It's the fulfilment of the story that reaches right back to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so he quotes this prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah, someone who lived over 500 years before the time of Jesus and yet foresaw this day when Messiah would ride into his city uh, on this donkey and be welcomed by the people. And I noticed that it says in the verses you read, a large crowd. So this was a large crowd and, and here we are, you know, on the Mount of Olives looking across to Jerusalem. That large crowd would have been noticed would have been heard from Jerusalem. The whole event would have caused quite a stir. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know, I tend to think of it as, you know, sometimes when there's some event, and we Brits are particularly good at doing this, aren't they? When there's some pageantry or other, and, and maybe um, the monarch is is going past in, in his carriage, in that case, when people gather on the streets, or even when some film stars passing through a town, people gather to see. And it, it's very much like that. The crowds are gathering here. I imagine all the way along this narrow, winding path. Don't think of a roadway going down. It, it would have been a, a reasonably narrow track, probably just wide enough for a donkey, maybe for two, so one could pass the other and it would have wound its way down this Mount of Olives and then down to the Kidron Valley and then up the little slope at the other side and into Jerusalem and this road full of people shouting these things that they were shouting. It couldn't possibly have gone unnoticed. When you think that these were people who were throwing down their cloaks on the paths in front of him. What were they doing there? They were symbolizing submission. It was a cultural way when you laid your cloak down of saying, I submit to you. They were submitting to Jesus. These branches, palm branches that they were waving. Uh, palm branches were 
were used as a symbol of victory in the Old Testament and at this particular time were even a symbol of Jewish nationalism. Hello, that might get the attention of the Romans. Their cries, Hosanna, which doesn't mean praise, but rather save now. They called him the son of David. Here they are recognising that he's the long-expected messianic king and they're calling upon him to save. My goodness, you can bet this started to get attention. Uh, the news would have buzzed back to the religious leaders and the political leaders in that city over there faster than we could have imagined. So this was certainly some form of entrance, but not a grand entrance in some respects. Yeah, great, but not grand. <laughs> it was certainly very special in fulfilment of this prophecy, but not grand in the sense that, oh, kings like King Herod used to like things being done grand, or the Roman rulers here like things to be done on a grand scale. It was significant rather than grand. It was symbolic. Uh, it was meaningful and purposeful and certainly caught the crowds, um, but was of a very different order to what the Herods and Pilots and Roman emperors of this world would be used to. And the timing was crucial. We've sort of heard in previous conversations how Jesus didn't really want to be revealed. Yeah, didn't want to be revealed as the Messiah. Why? As we've seen previously, because Jews at that time simply had the wrong understanding of what Messiah was going to be and do. They saw him as a political and military deliverer. And we've said before, Jesus didn't come with a sword, but with a cross. And so he's often avoided talking about himself. He's been very circumspect in acknowledging that he's the Messiah. He's instead used that other favourite title of his, the Son of Man, that mysterious figure that spoke both of humanity but also of glory and divinity. But now we're just a week away, Palm Sunday, not even a week, just days away from the following Friday when he would be crucified. And it's as if now as he enters Jerusalem, there's nothing to be hidden anymore. Now is the time. He knows the Father has spoken. He knows he said, Son, it's the time we've been planning and preparing for. And so now he enters in fulfilment of that prophecy of Zechariah as the promised messianic king coming on that donkey. Coming on a donkey in those days meant you came in peace. If you came in war, you'd have come on a horse. Even at this stage, he's offering peace, peace with himself, peace with his father. If only God's people would turn to him. It's not too late. It's not too late to say, yes, Hosanna to the son of David. It's not too late to have peace. But of course, within days, those who've cried Hosanna will be shouting crucify because he still wouldn't be the sort of Messiah that they wanted him to be. Does it surprise you the name they gave him, Son of David? Not really, because this is a title that we find elsewhere in the New Testament. And there's certainly this expectation throughout the Old Testament that a descendant of David would one day come. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is what we call the Davidic covenant when God makes a promise to David that you will never fail to have a descendant upon the throne. And 
throughout the Old Testament there is this prophetic expectation that one day God would send someone who was a descendant of that King David, which is why, of course, both Matthew and Luke begin their Gospels by going to great lengths to show that Jesus was indeed descended from David. He is the one who is going to fulfill those promises. So, no, it doesn't surprise me because it's there in the Old Testament. What surprises me is that they could recognize this, declare this over him one day, and four or five days later be declaring the very opposite. What happened immediately after this great entrance? Well, yeah, let's go and see, because the king starts to exercise a little bit of kingly authority. Why don't we read the second part of what happened that day, which is Matthew 21, verse 12 to 17. Jesus entered the temple area. Of course he would, because as he went through the great eastern gate here, he would have gone straight up the steps into the great temple courtyard. He entered the temple area and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a den of robbers. Well, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Don't you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you've ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Some people might be surprised at Jesus's what overreaction in the temple. <laughs> well, I think it's more Jesus's patience, because you know this abuse of the temple had been going on for years, and God had patiently borne with it. And now, at last, Jesus comes and he says, "That's it. That's enough. Time is up." And he goes into. Well, the great temple courtyard, the, the temple as we would be looking across to it from where we're sitting today, we'd see the great temple shrine building itself towering up above. And around that would be the courtyard of the priests where only the priests could go to offer sacrifices. Around that, separated by a, a cord that went all the way around, was what was called the court of Israel. But what it really meant was the court of the Jewish men. And it would be into there that the Jewish men would go and take their sacrifices, hand them over to the priests who would then offer them in sacrifice. And beyond those courtyards, the temple of the priests and the temple of the men would be the outer courtyards, the temple of the women, the temple of the Gentiles. And those great outer courtyards, which were surrounded by porticos where rabbis often used to teach, those great outer courtyards, which were enormous in size, were the only place that Gentiles could go to pray. Now, just a few years ago, archaeologists discovered a sign that would have been at the gate to the entrance to the courtyard of the women and through to the other courtyards. And this sign said, let it be known that whosoever shall enter this point shall be guilty of taking his life 
upon himself. In other words, what it was saying was non-Jews keep out. You aren't welcome. Our God doesn't welcome you. You can stay out there in the outer courtyards to pray, but you can't come in here where it matters. And it was in those outer courtyards that the merchants who sold the animals that were needed for sacrifices and the money changers who changed the local currency into temple currency would change the money. The trouble is, robbery was going on. The prices were inflated there because the animals were guaranteed to have been pre-inspected by the priests and therefore acceptable. They wouldn't get rejected. But the prices got hiked and the priests took a cut and the merchants took a cut. The money changers took a cut when they changed your everyday money into temple money because you could only use temple currency to pay your temple taxes. So the whole place had become what Jesus describes as a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, not just for Israel, but for all the nations, for the Gentiles. And Jesus is livid. God has put up with it long enough. And the moment has come when he starts going through. Oh, my goodness, wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall that day, marching through, tipping over the tables, knocking the coins on the floor, knocking the doves and the animals out of their cages, causing absolute chaos. Why? Because none of this belonged in there. But isn't there a time and a place for things like that? I mean, it sounds like Jesus sort of lost it. Yeah, there is a time and there is a place, and that was the time and that was the place. God had had enough. I don't think he lost it. Because Jesus never got angry in the way that we get angry. Jesus' anger was never reactive. It was responsive, just like God's is in the scriptures. God never reacts in anger, but he does respond in judgment when we refuse to respond to his repeated calls. That city over there had had call after call after call throughout the centuries, through the prophets, through the scriptures, and they said, now we'll be all right. And so the moment's come for judgment. And the Bible says the time has come for judgment and judgment begins at the house of God. It begins with God's people, not with the sinners out there. So it's not reactive. It's not anger like you and I. It's judgment coming, the judgment that they should have seen coming long before, that even people like Amos in the 8th century BC were challenging them about their social injustice that came out of that place. But the, you know, the mess that would have been created, surely they would have said, who does he think he is? Well, they did, didn't they, in effect? Uh, because they come along and, and, and say to him, uh, Jesus, excuse me, you know, can you not hear what these children are singing about? You know, Hosanna to the son of David. And he said, yeah, have you never read what the scripture said? From the lips of children and infants, God's ordained praise. These little ones are saying what you lot ought to be saying and you can't see it and they can. So they weren't particularly happy and of course it would be these events that really would galvanise the opposition against Jesus and make them decide that is it, we're going to put an end to this, an end that would come just five days later. It struck me that the last verse or so that you read, after that chaos that Jesus had created, seemed like a bit of an anticlimax. Yeah, he left them and went out to Bethany. He went back for a night's kip. Next morning, he'd come back again. And we read in the Gospels that he would spend 
the next three or four days teaching them. It's almost as if he's giving them an opportunity to the very last moment to hear the message that he has brought. And I, I suppose it does seem a bit like an anticlimax because the climax would not be Hosanna to the son of David. The climax would happen five days later when they nailed him to a cross. I mean, Bethany, just over the hill from where we are, so not very far away from where he had upset the money changers. You would have thought that there would have been a mob that would have come to get him. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, we, we simply don't know what happens. Yeah, Bethany's probably only a couple of miles away just over the hill, maybe not even that. Um, but I think what they did was rather than come and get him, because remember, at the moment, they're in the minority. <laughs> the crowd are all shouting Hosanna to Jesus. Now is not the moment to make your move. You are not going to be popular with this guy who's a rabbi and a healer. So they bide their time. They make their plans. They set their trap. And they wait until they can win people over to their side. There's nothing like a mob to be won over one way or the other. Have we sort of slightly turned the Palm Sunday story into a little bit of a theatrical moment? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean, because it's very common in some churches, isn't it, to, to have the children all dressed up that day and they put their tea towels on their head and, uh, and long robes and, uh, you know, someone's promoted to be Jesus. And even in my church in the past, uh, years ago, I remember as actually getting a real live donkey. Um, but it's not theatre is it and, and it is very easy just to reduce it to that actually what it is is very significant it is messiah making his claim to his city it is the son of david coming to claim his throne and yet people will reject him why because he wouldn't come as they wanted him to you know jesus would not shape himself to the sort of jesus they wanted him to be and, you know, David, still today, it, it's still really easy for us to do that, for us to, to want to shape Jesus, to become the sort of Jesus that we want. And as long as he'll be the sort of Jesus we want, answering our prayers, you know, soothing our fevered brow and saying there, there, when things go wrong, as long as he'll be our kind of Jesus, as long as he'll let us shape his word into what we want it to be, into what our culture tells us it should be, then we're very happy. But when that moment comes and he brings a challenge and reminds us he's the king, he's the Davidic king, he's the one on the throne, then I wonder how we respond at that point because it's very easy for us today to shout Hosanna when things are going our way and Jesus is the shape we want him to be, but when he isn't, to, in effect, to shout crucify because we don't want that thank you very much, Jesus. What do you think would be the modern equivalent of Jesus upsetting the money changers? Oh, well, it would probably be, you know, overturning the apple cart, wouldn't it? Uh, an image we use in English for upsetting the status quo. And there's probably a lot of status quo that needs upsetting. And it's very easy for us as Christians to look into the world and say, well, that needs upsetting and this needs upsetting. But I think sometimes there's an awful lot of status quo within our churches that could do with upsetting, where we've settled, where we've got comfortable, where we've taken the sharp edge off Jesus' teaching, where we've removed the radicalness, where we've softened it and made it more 
suitable for life in the 21st century. And I believe that Christian faith has to relate in every time and every place and every century. But it is very easy for us to reshape our faith so that it becomes comfortable. And I just wonder whether, you know, out of this, all of us perhaps shouldn't go to Jesus and say, Jesus, are there any apple carts in my life that you need to upset? I'm interested that Jesus sort of made a beeline for the money changers. <laughs> yeah, I bet he'd make a beeline for the money changers today as well, wouldn't he? You know, because as we just sort of follow through that thought of upsetting the apple cart, money's still a bigger thing as ever, isn't it? You know, the three things, money, sex and power, are still things that can dominate life, dominate people's thoughts, dominate culture, uh, can even be big in our own lives. There's nothing wrong with money. As long as we don't let money become a god. Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. He sort of personalised their money at that point. Uh, money can be good. But sometimes money can become our god. Uh, a good test is what do we do with our money? Here's a challenge for all of us. How much of your money do you give away each week or each month? How much do you give to your local church? How much do you give to Christian charities? How much do you give to those who are seeking to reach out to the poor and the marginalised? If God's blessed you, what are you doing in seeking to bless others? Are you being a money changer? Sitting there at your table, seeking to cling on to it, seeking to make more out of it all the time? Or you're seeking to use it in godly ways, and I suspect money would most definitely be a big area where Jesus would want to upset the apple cart, whether that's at our own personal level or even at structural levels of often how our society or maybe even how our churches operate. So in a sense, this story, Palm Sunday story, set here in the area of the Mount of Olives is when Jesus goes public big time and people's eyes are opened in a way that perhaps they weren't before. It's a mix. Some are opened and some are closed. Some were opened that day. The penny drop they recognise. You really are the promised messianic Davidic king. But some were closed, like those religious leaders, like those who had vested interests in the temple. Why? You know, they were blind. And I suppose a good question to ask from that is, you know, where do our own vested interests impact on our faith today? What don't we want Jesus to touch? Now, it might not be our table with the money or the doves on, but I tell you what, every single one of us has a table on which there's something that we don't want Jesus to touch because of how it might affect us or how he might call us to live. And I think this Palm Sunday story is a great opportunity to remind ourselves, yeah, he is looking for us to welcome him as the king, the promised king. But that's meaningless unless that's backed up with action right across our life, no areas excluded, and say, be king here and here and here and here, because only then is he truly king. Well, as we think about that first Palm Sunday and what it means for us today, pray for us, Mike, if you would. 
Lord, with joy we say today, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But we ask that those might not be mere words, but that rather our acclaiming of you as the promised king would be matched by the way we live our lives and by letting you be king over every single area of it. Help us, Lord, to do that, we pray. In your name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. Bible surprises.